Good morning, I'm Lauren Anders-Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter single origin coffee and always using the hashtag today's office. Now I'm picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind the scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record alone as my own correspondent. When I was approached to film the checklist effect in 2015, and lured in by the interesting filming destinations, none piqued my interest as much as Mongolia. Never had I ever anticipated going to Mongolia, and until that moment, I probably only ever thought the country existed in mythological history or on an Asian fusion food menu accompanied with beef and sometimes broccoli. But my confirmed plane ticket and long-haul flight in the, from the U.S., connecting in Moscow proved that this country was much more than a legend. But why of all places did the flights to Mongolia connect in Moscow? I met with my colleague Sarah in Moscow to take the final flight of our journey to Mongolia together. We arrived after another overnight flight, a little worse for wear, and I thought my vision was distorted. We arrived after another overnight flight, a little worse for wear, and I thought my vision was distorted because of the flight. I was still seeing Cyrillic, the same alphabet used in Russia, all over the airport, and even on the impressive airport overhead sign that spelt out Chinggis Khan's International Airport. Wait, wasn't it the legendary Genghis Khan? Or is this his brother? Or did I get on the wrong flight? Without the ability to speak Mongolian, which I can describe best as similar to the sound of parcel tongue from Harry Potter, Sarah and I waited as the two mute international arrivals, awaiting to be picked up at some point and transported to our accommodation, where we hoped our initial questions could be answered and alleviate our concerns that we boarded the wrong flight. Internationally known as Genghis, in Mongolia it is pronounced Chinggis Khan and they are one and the same, the ruthless emperor who ruled from the Caspian Sea to the Pacific Ocean, and whose face is on the currency and the vodka. The vodka, why vodka? Well, there's more to this alphabet than meets the eye. Russia and Mongolia share a 3,500 kilometer border. When Chinese forces attacked Mongolia in 1919 to negate its independence from China, the Russian Asiatic Cavalry Division helped Mongolia ward off the invasion. The Mongolian People's Republic was established in 1921 with the Soviet military support and under Soviet influence. So that explained the alphabet and the vodka. But the mystery of the name of the legendary leader of the country was less of a history lesson and more of a phonetics lesson. In Mongolia, the name has one pronunciation, and for the rest of the world, another. With our initial inquiries settled, 
we somehow found our driver, who spoke no English, but somehow we trusted he was the one to take us to our lodgings. The time zone difference was as expansive as the Gobi Desert to me. I was completely turned around when I felt I should be sleeping, I was awake, and unfortunately when I was meant to be awake, I was sleepwalking. I was sleepwalking all the way along the one mile walk to the hospital, appropriately named Hospital Number One. The anesthetists who suggested the walk quickly realized we probably should have jumped in a cab with my 20 kilograms of equipment on my back. But all that constitutes for a cab in the capital of Ulaanbaatar is any car. There's no signage and also no guarantee it will deliver you to your destination. So despite the fatigue, the one mile walk to the hospital number one was probably the number one choice. With no focus puller, just me, I did my best to focus myself and my cameras, but I mostly used the opportunity of the afternoon visit for introductions to the doctors and the surgical staff as I was there to film the work of the surgical safety checklist that had been implemented. Looking around the rooms, I noticed the supplies being used looked unique. One of the doctors, who would be with me for most of my trip, named Bakombo, proudly showed off a saline bottle to me and asked me what I thought. I replied, it looked just like any saline drip bottle I had seen, and he said, yes, exactly. I learned that due to the remote nature of Mongolia and the previous heavy reliance on Soviet support, the health system suffered greatly in regards to supplies being restricted to only coming from Russia and not having control over when and what that would be received. So Mongolians began to slowly change this power dynamic by creating their own supplies in country and becoming self-reliant. You won't find Mongolian saline drip bottles in hospital wards around the world, but they were able to supply themselves, which is not something many countries can attest to. Mongolia has a population of 3.225 million as of 2019, and with just under half of the population residing in the capital of Ulaanbaatar. Mongolia has one of the lowest average population densities of any country in the world. It is oval in shape, and measures about 1,500 miles wide and just under 800 miles north to south. With most of the landlocked plateau, including a mix of semi-deserts, deserts like the Gobi Desert, the largest one, forested high mountain ranges, and the picturesque upland steppes. I got to experience the steppes when I got out of Ulaanbaatar and hospital number one to visit it wasn't hospital number two, that's still in Ulaanbaatar, but to visit the Sum hospitals or regional hospitals. Along the way, we stopped by to get supplies, which included some necessary hospitality beers, which a very kind police officer just happened to not need because the day we chose for our field trip was also the day alcohol sale was banned. In every store, there were sheets, much like the ones I'd seen on operating tables, draped over the beverages adorned in Cyrillic labels, mostly in cans or clear bottles. The Russians left behind a love of vodka, and therefore serious liver disease that plagues the country and overburdens the health system so much, it instigates this weekly day of prohibition. If you don't know, an amenable police officer who just needs to unload some beers, of course. We arrived at a collection of gares traditional circular Mongolian nomad homes just before sunset. Naturally, a horse was awaiting us to go for a ride before it got too dark and too cold 
to do anything but cozy up beside the fire in our gare. Mongolian food is full of meat and dairy. There were no vegetables to be found anywhere, and if there were, they were definitely imported. So it led to some acquired tastes for a very unique yogurt. The most I can say is the beer paired nicely with the food or made you forget what it tasted like. I was amazed how warm the gare was and how quiet and remote. Most Mongolian people choose this nomadic lifestyle and I could completely understand why. To live simply and amongst such endless skies and greenery compared to Ulaanbaatar. And it's not an isolated lifestyle choice. Many Mongolians choose to be nomads for some of the year and for other parts of the year live in the towns or cities. A little off topic from surgery, I really want to know how nomads accessed health being so far and remote. Could this lifestyle really be sustainable and survivable if something was to happen to a person's health? Bakumbo helped me ask some of these questions, not to the usual surgeons or anesthetists I interviewed, but to the actual people on the ground, the medics who drove the ambulance. They told me the response team is a very good team. Summer is around the corner and hot season is coming. There will be increased number of emergency cases or calls for cardiac disease, hypertension and trauma. We do home visits for emergency cases and offer service. A doctor and a driver are available 24 hours a day. We receive and triage all emergency calls, then we visit the most urgent call first. If the emergency is more than 20 kilometers, it is triaged as a long-range emergency call. The dispatcher receiving the call will gather the patient information on the illness or injury. They also obtain address and location of the accident. This is to determine the location and whether it is more than 20 kilometers to activate the appropriate response resource. This includes a dedicated ambulance and specialties. We have in the past visited as far as 60 kilometers maximum. In one occasion, we provided services at a farther distance than this. If the accident or injury is farther than 60 kilometers, the closest Zoom doctors will provide first response and transfer the patient to a bigger hospital. The Bayan Delger, Mogin Morit, Bayan Jagarlin, Tsums, hospitals are located around the Baganur district. They transfer patients needing the next level of medical care via their ambulances to the Baganut district hospital. Generally, we respond a variety of emergency calls. Some urgent cases which required surgery, such as ectopic pregnancy, need immediate attention. These surgeries are performed at the Sum Hospital. Surgical doctors, anesthesia teams, and nurses prepare the equipment and go to Sum Hospital for surgery. 
We also respond to any emergency calls, such as trauma, hypertension, and convulsion. Yesterday, before I handed over my night shift, I received one emergency call which was named Muhrin Am, 24 kilometers away. The patient had convulsion and had lost consciousness. When we arrived at the scene, the patient had right When we arrived at the scene, the patient had right hemiparesis and had a definite hemorrhagic insult. The examination revealed that there was arterial hypertension and convulsion. First, we treated convulsion and stabilized his blood pressure. The patient was handed over to an appropriate care setting with providing continuous medical care in the ambulance. We do not have enough equipment. We make our diagnosis using the stethoscope, sphygmometer, and pulse oximetry. Along with performing physical examination and checking reflexes, we check neurological status, then transfer the patient to the hospital. We do not have other equipment than what we mentioned. Yes, we had. Due to summer vacation, traffic accidents happen a lot. During winter, the road condition is yet another reason for accidents, and we respond to all of these calls as well. First of all, patients are triaged for the severity of their injuries and prioritized according to the severity of injuries. If a fracture is determined, an appropriate splint must be applied. If the emergency call is due to a traffic accident, we have to take the especially dedicated emergency kits. We must take all the splint supplies. If there is a fracture, splint must be applied immediately. An on-site triage is performed and a decision is made about who must be transferred first. This is the kind of assistance we provide. Also, the first treatment must be pain relief after enduring the assessment of the patient condition. If the patient is a trauma victim, he or she probably has a fracture and abrasion, therefore we must relieve the pain. Generally, doctors who work at emergency department are learning a lot. Emergency care providers work at the first line. They are always faced with traffic accidents, acute conditions, myocardial infraction, hemorrhage, and delivery at home. We must make and assess the patient condition immediately and make a decision on the treatment and if applicable, how to transfer the patient safely. If a doctor practices family medicine, they cannot work in such a critical situation. On the contrary, the advantage of having emergency care responders who have a wide range of knowledge from this field is needed and beneficial. It is a rewarding feeling to have successfully treated and transferred a patient. It's a great feeling. If the patient had surgery and recovered, and someday you meet the patient, and they greet you with such respect and care, it makes you proud of your profession and skills that you were able to take care of them. I think we're good, yeah. They weren't just drivers. They were a lifeline to the people in the steps. It is amazing that access existed. And they were even able to find people, but even more incredible was what they could do with such limited resources. It was obviously such a popular lifestyle. Their jobs were essential. On my way back to Ulaanbaatar, before heading off to my next adventure, we got to experience some magnificent traditional Mongolian culture. 
It was the lead up to their yearly annual festival of horse riding, archery, and falconry. We got to attend a show and I picked up a bow and arrow, which I somehow managed to bring all the way back through the 12 time zones I traveled as a reminder of my time with the people who were finding ways to live in self-isolation long before it was a global health necessity. Now, if you have a film that's focused on global health, I wanted to remind you, unarmed, that is, I promise not to point my bow and arrow at you when I say this, that the submissions for the Global Health Film Festival are closing soon on August 15th. It's a festival that I have found as a filmmaker to have been essential to the start of my career and that I would highly encourage you to submit and attend. The more change makers we have making films, the more change can happen. To submit and find out more, visit globalhealthfilm.org. That's G-L-O-B-A-L-H-E-A-L-T-H-F-I-L-M dot O-R-G. And that's it for today. Back next month with more from my correspondent. Do join me.